Harlan to give us a little bit about the history of step two. So Harlan G from Arizona. Thank you very much. And thank you to all the people who made this possible. What an amazing event. What an, God just took the whole world and made it one group, one inner group. It's just amazing. For thousands and thousands of years, there was no one that knew what the problem of alcoholism was. Going all the way back to King Solomon in Israel, he believed in the book of Solomon that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no remedy for it at all. In the 1640s in England, there was a doctor named Dr. Trotter. Dr. Trotter believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no remedy for it at all. All the way back into the founding of our country here, 1790, the very first Surgeon General, a man by the name of Benjamin Rush, published a paper in 1790 in which he believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no remedy for it. In 1810, he proposed to the president of the United States that we start a series of hospitals for inebriates. But of course it was voted down. Dr. William Duncan Silkworth came along in New York. I'm pressed for time, I can't go into detail, but Dr. William Duncan Silkworth identified the problem as a physical allergy coupled with a twist of the mind that drove the alcoholic into the first drink in search of relief from the untenable, unbearable pain of not drinking, of, of, of not drinking. And that the physical allergy took over, making it impossible for that person to stop. Now let's go back to Rhode Island. Let's go back to Roland Hazard. So we know the problem. Roland Hazard was a drunk, Roland Hazard came from a wealthy family. I only have five minutes, is that still correct? Oh, oh boy. All right, Roland Hazard came from a very wealthy family in Rhode Island. He sought out uh, Dr. Freud. Dr. Freud wouldn't take him on as a patient. And he sought out Adler, who was the number two man in psychiatry. Adler pointed him in the direction of Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, Jung. And he went to Geneva, Switzerland, Roland did, and was under Jung's care. Through a series of mishaps, he got drunk again, came back to Jung. Jung said, the only thing that will help you is a spiritual experience. In search of a spiritual experience, Roland will go to the Oxford group in New York City where he will meet Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker was an Episcopal minister at the Calvary Mission and Roland will meet two men who will remain instrumental. One is Seber Graves Jr. and the other one is Shep Cornell. Seber Graves Jr. was from East Dorset, Vermont. Who else is from East Dorset, Vermont? Bill Wilson. Is it odd or is it God? Put them on hold in your mind for just a minute and we're gonna now go to Manchester, Vermont. 
the summer home of the Thatcher family and their wayward son, Edwin Ebby Thatcher, is getting the home ready in April of 1934. He is drunk. He's painting a wall. He is drunk out of his mind and a pigeon lands on the gutter above where he's painting. And he does what every normal drunk alcoholic does. He goes in, he gets a shotgun, starts blasting. The neighbors call the police in April of 1934. Ebby is arrested by the police in Manchester, Vermont, and put on, if you've ever seen Animal House, double secret probation. He is put on double secret probation. But in August of 1934, late August of 34, Ebby Thatcher will be driving drunk. He will drive into a woman's kitchen, doesn't show the slightest bit of contrition, hops out of the car and says, how about a cup of coffee, toots? She calls the police. In a visit to East Dorset, Vermont, Roland Hazard and Sebra Graves Jr will intercede with the judge in the Thatcher case, whose name happens to be Sebra Graves Sr. Is it odd or is it God? Roland and, and Sebra will petition the judge to remand Ebby to their care and give them a crack at him, taking him to New York into the Oxford group in September of 1934. Between September and November, Ebby will amass two months of sobriety. He is now charged with going out and giving testimony. And he thinks about who he can do it with and Bill Wilson comes to mind. He will visit Bill in late November, 1934. Bill knows the problem, doesn't know the solution. Ebby Thatcher will bring to Bill Wilson a spiritual solution to the problem of alcoholism. And for the very first time in known recorded history of earth, the problem of alcoholism will meet the solution of alcoholism. And in this confluence will spring forth the entire program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that is where step two comes from. It comes to us from the, the Oxford group through a very unlikely source, Ebby Thatcher, a very low bottom alcoholic. And with that, I've already gone over time. I'll pass, thanks. Thank you, Harlan, so much. Okay, so now we all know how we got here. Now we're going to hear from six wonderful speakers who are going to share with you their journey on how they found God. Each speaker will have 15 minutes to share so that all of our speakers know Jen A is your timer. So before you start, if you can just tell her how you would like your time. Our first speaker today originally from New York, which will make Janet happy, but now a very active part of our LA Fellowship for over 10 and a half years. Please welcome to our Zoom virtual floor, my friend, David G. Go ahead, David. Thank you, Susan, and thank you for running this. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm David, I'm a compulsive overeater, bulimic, anorexic. Um, and Jen, can I please have five, five and five? Absolutely. Thank you. Just to qualify, I came into OA in New York City 13 years ago. I'm coming up on 11 years of abstinence and my abstinence is no binging, no purging. 
no flour and no sugar. And, you know, when I came into OA, not only did I not have a God, I was anti-God. I was, don't tell me there's a God unless you had the childhood that I had. That was the chip on my shoulder. F you God, if there is a God. Um, and my life was in such shambles that if there was a God, it was just proof that I was being punished all the time. And, um, you know, I heard at a meeting and I, I've kept repeating it because it rings so true for me that the issue is in my tissues. And, um, you know, this idea that everything in my life today, you know, that's wrong, I can trace back to some kind of issue from my past. Um, it's usually never a direct relationship to what's going on in my reality. And I look at, you know, my definition to a higher power when I came in, which was, there is no God. And if there is a God, the God doesn't have my back. And I look at my relationship growing up with my parents. You know, I grew up in an alcoholic home, severely mentally ill mother, um, abusive father, you know, just growing up with rage and addiction and alcoholism and kind of this feeling of every man for themselves. You know, I always share, you know, this memory that I have of childhood that my dad was raging through the house and shoved my sister up against the wall and was grabbing her by her chins, calling her a fat effing pig. You know, no wonder she's also in this program. And I, as a, you know, five-year-old came running to the rescue and like jumped on my dad and was trying to pry him off my sister. And he just like threw me up against the wall. And I remember looking across this long hallway at my mom who was standing in the doorway and she just went into her room and closed the door. And that's kind of how it felt like as a kid. It was my own family can't even protect me and care for me. So like, I'm not gonna turn my life and my will over to the care of this, um, you know, this being that I don't even see when I can't even do that with my own, you know, core family members. And, you know, I ended up testifying against my dad when I was seven and court took away custody. And I ended up being raised by this mom who I later learned you know, is bipolar, schizophrenic, and, you know, not to take her inventory, but growing up with that type of um, figure, it was, there was always a different reality. We were moving to India. She was married to a different person. Like, there was just no sense of security under me, and I found food, and the food became my consistency, and, you know, what is a higher power? It's anything that I give my, my, my trust to, and that was what the food was. You know, the food was my best friend. It was my mom. It was my dad. When I came home from school, it took care of me. Um, it showed up for me. It was consistent. It never hurt me. It never punished me. But like it says in the literature, one day we cross this invisible line. And I don't even know I've crossed it until I've crossed it. And now I'm 60 pounds overweight. I'm bullied at school. I'm picked on. But still, like, I need something greater than myself to make me feel like I'm okay because my parents aren't going to do it. And um, I kept, you know, taking food and then diet pills and bulimia and, you know, really every type of um, disorder around food that I could have had, I had until I hit my bottom, you know, and I ended up in Manhattan. I was living in New York City. I hadn't spoken to my dad in 15 years. I was failing out of college. I was 15 pills of hydroxy cut every day. 
Um, I was going from every single Whole Foods, binging, 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 constantly hospitalized because of this addiction and other, you know, programs. And everybody just worried about me. You know, when are you going to get help? And me just never surrendering. And finally, you know, a near suicide attempt when I was 21 years old, let me, you know, I always hear in the meetings, you know, fellows will say, I'm trying to surrender or I'm trying to find God. And for me, this whole program is experiential and it's counterintuitive. I can't, whenever I'm trying to do something, it means there's a bit of self-will in there, hoping to get a result. Step one for me was a stop trying. I stopped trying absolutely. I gave up absolutely all of my ideas, all of my beliefs, and I just became completely willing to try something different. And you know, who cares? thank you, who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one. But that's what I have to do before, you know, even beginning to find a higher power. I have to completely admit complete defeat with my eating disorder and my, you know, my thinking. And I did that with step one. And then when I got to step two, I started hearing the God thing in program and it completely tripped me out. You know, I'm also 21 years old at the time and I didn't want to believe in God. And, you know, I, my, my definition of a higher power was so fraught and, you know, so complicated due to my childhood. Um, and my spot, you know, I ended up surrounding myself with people that I trusted in this program. And, you know, I had a sponsor who used to say, just write down your most repetitive thoughts. You know, the neuroscientists say we have 40 to 60,000 thoughts a day, but addicts are compulsive overeaters. We have four thoughts that we think about 40 to 60,000 times. Just write them down on paper. And I would do that and I would keep a journal and I'd write it in my notes on my phone. What are my, you know, my most repetitive thoughts? And that became my step two application, just watching my mind. And the more that I watch my mind, the more that I saw, you know, even abstinent and sober, I was insane. You know, when I really watch, you know, the most repetitive activity in my mind, I'm like, I'm not okay. You know, my mind is always in the past or the future. It always, you know, is looking for the next problem to solve. And it's always looking for a solution outside of me to make me feel better, which goes all the way back to when I was five years old looking for food, um, you know, to turn into my family. And, you know, that sponsor used to say, you don't have to believe in God, just stop, just start talking to something that's not your mind. And well, what do I say? And, you know, I thought that was the one from the uh, closet. Great. And, you know, the, the sponsor used to say, just say, God, higher power, whatever, it, whatever you feel comfortable, it could be doorknob, it could be whatever just protect me from my mind. And I used to say that, you know, if I have 40 to 60,000 negative thoughts a day, I gotta get, you know, praying with a higher power and, you know, infiltrate some positivity into those negative thoughts. So all day long, I used to just say, can you protect me from my mind? Whatever there is out there, if there is a higher power, just protect me from my mind today. And the more that I did that, the more that I got peace in my mind and the more that my reality started changing because my thoughts do create my reality. And the more that I started thinking positively and bringing in a higher, you know, I now hear a highest power, the more that I bring that in, the more that my life starts to change in the third dimensional world. And then, you know, I, I, 
what happens for me in program is I'm a skeptic. So the more that I see results that work for me, the more that I go for it. And you know, this disease is progressive and recovery is progressive. And you know, I used to do things from my recovery, not believing that they would work. And the more that they worked, the more that I did. And now I don't work my program like, like my life depends on it because I'm scared of breaking my abstinence. I do it because my life is amazing and I wanna you know, have it to continue to be more amazing. And that's the shift that happens in program. But by the time I'm in step three, my reality starts looking different. And I want, you know, I love the quote from Michelangelo, you know, how did you make David? David was there all along. I just had to carve away everything that wasn't David. And that's for me, God, higher power today. It's there all along. I have to carve away everything that no longer serves me in my life. So it starts with the food. You know, if I'm not abstinent, if this isn't, you know, if I'm not um, really sober with my food, even imperfectly, uh, there's no chance, you know, so I have to get abstinent with my food. But that's just the beginning. I don't know anybody who has childhood trauma, who just has one addiction, like it's, you know, alcohol or cigarettes or porn or shopping or over dating, whatever it is, the social media, like I have to give all of, I just have to carve away, carve away, carve away. And the more that I do that, my life becomes flow and miracles constantly happen. And you know what my life looks like today how I found God about a year into my abstinence, I ended up on this, you know, 12 step trip to Israel. And at the end of every day, people would, you know, circle around and say, what were your spiritual experiences of the day? And I used to feel like I'm not having any here. And I feel so like bad because I'm not connecting. I'm not having these magical experiences. And we went to the wall and I remember putting a note in the wall and I said, God, just help me have a spiritual experience here, basically so I can prove to my fellows that I'm spiritual. And the next Five day, minutes. thank you. The next day I ended up in the emergency room for the rest of the trip. Um, I, like, I got really sick, I got acute pneumonia and I was in this emergency room where nobody spoke English and I just stayed connected to God the entire time. And that became my spiritual experience. And for me, whenever I'm looking for God, like as if I'm gonna get a result because I found God, it doesn't work. Like I just have to let go absolutely. And then God floods in. Um, you know, the same thing happened with my step work. You know, I've been through the steps many times and when I'm in a step, my life just shifts and I'm given new experiences and the next indicated action comes to me. And, you know, one time I went through the steps and, you know, the relationship with my father was really coming up. And, you know, by the time I was on the ninth step, I ended up in New York and I, you know, reunited with him after not speaking for 15 years. And we went to a 12 step meeting in OA meeting in Westchester. And, you know, at the end of the meeting, he raised his hand and he said, my name's Lou and I'm a compulsive overeater and I've been in denial my whole life. And, um, you know, my dad and I have a relationship today and he gave the toast at my wedding. And when I came in, I never in a billion, I, you know, same with God, which was like, F you. That's how I, that, that was my relationships with everyone. It was the same type of energy. It was, I'm never gonna talk to my dad again. F you dad, like you're the reason why I'm so effed up. And, you know, this program has shown me miracles. You know, I met my wife the day after 
my ex broke up with me in like a horrible way. And, you know, I could have went to the food that day, but instead I went to my sponsor's house and coincidentally, my wife was at my sponsor's house. Like I just go into program my life. This is a design for living. My life is surrounded with recovery and constantly I'm having to carve away the things that no longer serve me. Um, and, you know, by the time I'm at step 12, like it says in the AA literature, this is about the joy of living. You know, the newcomers want to see that we're alive and we're enjoying our life and we're not just fraught with the food. Like my life is amazing today. I love my life. I love my wife. I love the people I work with. I love what I do for a living. I love that I have a, a healthy relationship to my body and to food. Um, and to my recovery. And I, without this, I have nothing. Like I literally, I came in here with nothing. And I have, a, I have sponsors who remember when I had $5 in the bank account, like the beauty of growing up in recovery is I have people all along the way who remind me how filled my life is with miracles. And they remind me, you know, your higher power is always taking care of you. Whenever shit hits the fan, like I say, there's a miracle on the other side if I just stay connected to that power. God, can you just protect me from my mind today? So thank you so much for letting me share and I look forward to hearing how everybody else found God too. Thank you, David. And thank you from the 393 people who got to hear you today and your powerful message. So now we zoom over from the West Coast to the East Coast. One of the gifts of Zoom is we've all gotten to make wonderful new friends and work together in a whole different way. Um, Janet came into these rooms when she was a teenager and she now has 31 years of recovery from bulimia and she's going to share with you today her journey on how she found God. Over to you, Janet. Hi guys, um, I'm Janet from New Jersey. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And my hope is in 15 minutes to convince anyone here today who's still struggling that yes, the age of miracles is still with us. Um, a few words about me, and then I wanna talk about um, God, who's way more important than I am. Um, I first came into OA, yes, as a teenager, already a full-blown compulsive eater. I stole food, I stole money for food. And at my worst, I was binging and throwing up six times a day. Um, I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the abuse I heaped on it. And even though I looked normal, I always say if I were going to show a before picture, I would have to like comb through the walking dead files and take something out of there because I could be in a room with all of you and feel like I was all by myself. I was a compulsive liar and made up crazy stories to get attention including cutting myself with razors, pretending I was mugged or raped, going to the hospital for a fake rape exam, and even taking the penicillin that the very kind nurse gave me so I wouldn't get syphilis from my fake rapist. Um, I continued acting this way, and I continued binging and purging for my first seven years in OA. I didn't get one bit better until I was introduced to the 12 steps to and to the God who I believe launches search and rescue missions for addicts. And once I surrendered my life to God and committed to work this program, it was just like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. 
And by the grace of God, I've now been in recovery, um, been free for over 37 years. And I'm excited to talk to you about this God who is still alive and well and working miracles and how to find him. But first I wanna say a few words about powerlessness because before we get to step two, we really need the impetus of step one. Um, on page 24 of our big book, it tells us that we're unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago, that we're without defense against the first drink or for us compulsive bite. So let's break that down. Normally my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory, right? The book talks about hot stoves. If I'm about to touch a hot stove, in my memory are all these data points telling me touching a hot stove is dangerous. So if I'm about to touch a hot stove, my memory will send a little thought to run across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind saying, stop, danger, hot stoves will burn you. And I don't touch the stove. Or for me, I have horrible cat allergies. So in my memory are all these data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if I'm tempted to go into a pet store, my memory sends a little thought running across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger, cats will give you an asthma attack. So again, my memory keeps me from danger. Well, let's talk about food. So I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies in college. I would always say, I'm gonna eat just one or two, but we know how that ended. I would eat the whole box and sometimes more. So in my memory were lots of data points of how I'd promise myself, I'll just have one cookie, but I'd end up eating the whole box. So there I'd go out again, about to buy a box of cookies, promising myself, I'll just have one. And my memory goes to send a little thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger. You won't be able to stop at one. You'll eat the whole box and then you'll hate yourself and get fatter, don't do it except when it came to food, the bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. My memory failed to hold me in check and therefore I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. Couldn't keep the memory green, couldn't just tell myself to stay away from certain foods. Just like Bill Wilson, when he realized he was hopeless said on page eight, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. For me, food was my master and I had a broken bridge. Okay, so my bridge is broken. No connection between my memory and my conscious mind when it comes to food. And once that bridge is broken, it can't be fixed. Self-knowledge won't fix it. Desire won't fix it. I was 100% hopeless without a miracle. So how to have that miracle? Well, again, that's why I love this book because it gives me basically the recipe, the formula for a miracle. On page 45, it tells me again, lack of power is my problem. And then it tells me exactly what my solution is. And it doesn't say my solution is meeting or food plans or fellowships. Those are all wonderful, but that's not the solution with a capital S. The solution is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. Those are really powerful words. The solution is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. So if we play detective here, 
we see that the big book is giving us our first clues about how to find this miracle. It tells me there's a power that will solve my problem. And that gives me some clues. If it's gonna solve my problems, this power must be pretty smart because I couldn't figure out how to do it. This power must also be strong because this illness kicked my butt. So it had to be stronger than me and stronger than the illness. And most important, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would it bother trying to solve my problem? So smart, strong, and cares about me. That's a power, that's a God who I can want to have a relationship with. Okay, let's look for more clues. Um, how about page 55? It says that deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or another, it's there. To me, that is crazy exciting. This paragraph is telling me that when God created me, he gave me two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and the fundamental idea of himself. I personally love that, that God loved me so much that he put the knowledge of himself right inside of me. But it tells me what blocks it, calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. Calamity, that's a problem that Bill Wilson had, right? On page 11, when Ebby came to visit him, Bill said to him, yeah, all sounds good, but you know, what I've seen in war, um, he said it made him think that God wasn't even involved in human affairs. And if there was a devil, he seemed to be the boss. And I think we often have the same problem. If there was a God, why would he allow human trafficking or poverty or more close to home? Why did he allow my dad to die a slow death with Parkinson's or allow this person to die of cancer or any one of a hundred awful things. So how do we get past that? Well, we guess, I guess we have to do what Bill did, what Ebby told Bill to do. Ebby basically said he had no answers, but that when he gave his life to God, God removed his obsession to drink. In other words, I don't need to have the answers as to why God allows certain things. I just need to know that if I give my life to God, he's gonna remove my food obsession. And that's just his opening act. Um, the next thing that gets in the way, it says, is pomp. And that's just simply putting myself on the throne. It's saying that I'm better than everyone, that I know better than everyone, and therefore everyone should do what I think, say, or don't even tell them, but they, they should automatically know 24 seven. I tried living that way, it didn't end well. It ended with a surgically wrapped esophagus. The last thing it's mentioned is worship of other things. Well, what other things am I putting ahead of God? I'll know the answer to that when I can fill in this blank. I will never be happy unless, and that unless is really, those are really my idols, those things I'm putting ahead of God. Unless I have a husband, a child, a better job, obedient children, children who go to church, children who go to college, children who just behave. And whenever I say I won't be happy unless I'm kicking God off the throne. I wanna mention another thing that the big book talks about as being a block and that's dishonesty. 
Um, we can look on pages 58 and 146, where it's stressed how critical it is to be honest. That means I can't be dishonest with my sponsor about my food or anything else. I can't be dishonest by omission. And aside from my sponsor, I just can't tell lies. I can't lie. I can't cheat on my husband. I can't cheat on my taxes. Basically, if I'm dishonest at all, it's like I'm taking a big black magic marker and writing, keep out God across my heart and God will listen. Okay, so we have some clues about God. He's smart, he's strong, and he cares about me. And he can be blocked by calamity, pomp, worship of other things, and dishonesty. Well, that's helpful, but our book tells us on page 53 that reason only brings us so far. So what do we do after we've gathered our clues? For me, it started with a prayer. Now I prayed before, um, but this prayer was a little different. And actually why pray? Why bother praying? Well, prayer is the currency in the spiritual world. In the physical world, if I wanna get a bag of groceries or a tank of gas, I hand the clerk a $20 bill. Money is the currency in the physical world. But obviously I can't hand God a $20 bill and say, give me power over my food obsession because the currency in the spiritual world is faith activated by prayer. So I prayed, and this was a different prayer. This wasn't just a God help me, God help me, God help me. Um, this was a prayer of surrender. I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and to start over and to let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. And then it was just like a hand reached into me and yanked out the obsession. And I started immediately doing whatever it took to develop an honest life, to clean up my past, to help others and live in obedience to God. Three minutes. Three. Okay. If someone is sitting here today who isn't sure that there even is a God, you can start with a maybe prayer. It might go something like this, God. And by the way, you don't have to call him God or even believe that God is a him. God has many names, um, but this is just an idea of how it might go. God, I don't know if you're there. And if you're there, I don't know if you care about me, but if you're there and if you care, I need help. And the worst thing that can happen is that you're talking to dead air. But what if there really is a God what if there really is? And what if that prayer is a catalyst that allows God to start a renovation project on our hearts so that we have a spiritual experience, so that he begins to rewire our souls in such a way that our plans and priorities become more like his plans and priorities. And when that happens, guys, the food obsession doesn't stand a chance. I'm telling you just from my experience in the past 37 years, that there is a God. There is a God who is alive and well and craves a relationship with us. My personal belief, again, I'm allowed to have my own conception of God, is that God created the world in six days, took a day off to rest, and is spending the rest of eternity launching search and rescue missions for addicts. As it says on page 153 of our book, the age of miracles is still with us. 
And this program promises us so many miracles. The miracle of the food obsession being removed, the miracle of restored families, and this one mentioned on page 161. They had visioned the great reality, their loving and all-powerful creator. And I pray that we all find that loving and all-powerful creator. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Um, if you know me, you know I'm keeping my little tab of the numbers here and I am just overwhelmed. 424 people, wow. Okay, so now get your pens and papers ready. We're going to give you 10 minutes to write. Jen, perhaps you can give us a three minute warning. So here is your first writing assignment. Hold on to your writing, don't get rid of it. On page 45, the big book tells us that the main object of the book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. That gives us three clues about this power. One, it's smart two, it's strong, three, it cares about me. How does that make you feel? Do you agree? Do you have trouble believing your higher power is smart enough, strong enough, and cares about you enough to help you? What stumbling blocks are there? So we have 10 minutes and we'll leave that up on the screen for you and we'll give you a three minute morning. Thank you.
three minutes remaining. All right, Susan, that's time. Okay, thank you, Matt. If you could end the screen share, that would be amazing. Okay, before we go on to our next two speakers, we're going to have a quick reading. Janet will handle that part, but I just want to remind everybody about our seventh tradition. According to our seventh tradition, we are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. Today, we ask that you either donate to the LA intergroup or New Jersey intergroups so we can continue to spread the message to those who still suffer. If one of the co-hosts who's perhaps on the LA board can post our intergroup details for donations. And I know that Janet will shortly post for New Jersey. And then Janet, I will pass it over to you right now. Thank you. Or Bonnie, if you wouldn't mind putting the NJIOA donation information in the chat, that would be awesome. Um, so welcome back everyone. Hopefully that was helpful for you. And before we hear our next two speakers, we just are gonna hear a quick reading from the big book 
from my dear friend, Stephanie L. Steph, go ahead and unmute. Oh, there we go. Okay, it wouldn't let me, now it will, okay. Hi everyone, Stephanie L, Recovered Compulsive Eater in Southern California. The great fact is just this and nothing less. We have had deep and effectual spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, towards our fellows and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. If you are seriously, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe that there is no middle of the road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blocking out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to, and we were willing to make the effort. And now I am happy to introduce our next speaker to you, um, Brandy from Canada. Brandy has been gone to meetings for 27 years and has been entirely abstinent and recovered for 19 months and is dedicated to helping others who have, who have struggled with this disease. So welcome, Brandy. Hi, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are, good evening. My name is Brandy M. I'm a recovered compulsive reader and I am in Alberta, Canada. Um, first, I'd love to just thank the people who put this together and Susan, who's now become one of my good friends. I just love you. If it wasn't for the pandemic, I would have never known you. And so that's my one gratitude from God for sure. Um, and Jen, you can just let me know when I'm at five minutes. Um, so I came into program when I was 16 years old, um, I was very young and I really believe that my mind was not in a place where I, I could really comprehend, uh, what was even being told to me. I knew that I was fat. I was over 300 pounds. I was miserable. I was having trouble with personal relationships. I, you know, was in school and I was failing and skipping and, you know, I just, I just knew that something wasn't right. And I was told my whole life, if you would just lose the weight, life would be better, that that would solve all my problems. And so that was my core idea. You know, my, my food stuff was my problem. Um, what I know today is that the food has never been my problem. You know, I, I have a living problem and, you know, throughout program. I've struggled with relapse. Um, you know, I've had times where I'm abstinence, times where I'm imperfectly abstinence, which means that I was just lying. Um, and, you know, that's kind of how, how it worked for me. At one time I had a year, a year and a bit of abstinence, three meals a day, but I was eating chocolate bars for supper. Like, you know, and so that, that's kind of how I lived in my program is, you know, I, I really half measured this and, you know, this isn't a program I can half measure. It's not, I'll get nothing. And so I, the God stuff always really bothered me. I used to say, 
and this is another disclaimer, I know that this is being recorded, but I swear. And so I'm really going to try hard not to swear. So um, Susan sent me a text, remember it's being recorded. And I'm like, okay, I can't make any promises. Um, but, you know, I thought it was a bunch of bull. Like God is going to do for me what I can't do for myself. God is going to take this problem. Like that's how arrogant I was for probably the first 25 years. Like I never, I was like, no, I'm going to take care of the problem. Like how can God do this for me? And I didn't really believe in God. I mean, we said prayer, we said prayers when we were kids and, you know, I went to Catholic school, so I had an idea, but I didn't have any sort of foundation of what this higher being was. And, you know, and personally, I thought that, you know, I was doing a pretty good job of my life. And so why did I need, why did I need God? You know, and it's funny because they, you know, people used to always say to say to me, oh, you know, Brandy, you speak your mind. Like you are, that's one thing we can depend on you that you're going to speak your mind. Yeah, I sure did. And I sure wrecked a lot of relationships in the, in the midst of me doing that. You know, I would say anything that would come to my head. And unfortunately, like, well, unfortunately for those people, a lot of times it wasn't nice and it wasn't kind. And, you know, so I, I grew up in the rooms and I just like, I don't know, I just, I just didn't really see how this program worked, you know, nor was I hearing a message that had depth and weight. Like I would come to meetings and it would be like just a dumping ground. And I was like, ah, these meetings make me feel shittier. Like I, I don't want to come back, but I would, then I would leave and try like more self-will and it would fail and it would fail miserably every single time. And so I had no choice, but to go back to OA. OA was the last house on the block for me. And because, you know, I would go to places like way and pays and people, you know, they would look at me when I would gain weight. Like I remember gaining seven pounds in one week and they looked at me and they're like, what were you doing? And I'm like, well, eating. And they didn't get it. They looked at me like I had five heads. And so, you know, I, I quickly felt like I didn't belong in those rooms either, right? All the way in pays, I didn't belong. You know, that was a really core thing for me is that where do I belong? I'm not good enough. I'm never gonna be good enough. And, you know, and then I started thinking about that in these rooms, you know, I'm never gonna be good enough to get this. You know, God's helping all these other people, but I'm like, obviously unique and I just can't get it like them. And those are ideas that were really grained within me. And like somebody said earlier, those are ideas that came from when I was a kid. I was never good enough because I was overweight. I was always compared to the sister, to the family, to the cousins, to whoever. You know, I was never told that I was beautiful. I was never told that, you know what, you're smart, you're funny, nothing, nothing, because I was overweight. And so, you know, that's something that even like years and years in the program that I just, you know, I always thought like I was starting to accept that maybe I'll just be fat forever and I'll just be miserable and the food will just be my friend. And, you know, life, life hit me and life hit me hard. And I had a lot of losses in my life and this disease took me by the throat. This disease turned me into somebody that I did not want to be. You know, I was 
I was using drugs, I was using alcohol, I was using, you know, food, people, validation, anything, anything, so that I didn't have to feel all the pain that was happening in my life. And, you know, I always hear somebody say that, you know, the shit storms either on its way or it's here. Like, there's really no two ways about it. And so I would, when the shit storm would come, I'd be like, oh, fuck, I gotta eat, I gotta eat. Oh, well, there's that F-bomb, sorry. Um, I got to eat. I got to feel better. I like, I can't, I could never handle feeling uncomfortable and relying on my own power. It wasn't working. It wasn't working. I was getting, you know, I, I came in the rooms at 350 pounds and like, you know, I had taken off about 50 pounds, like it, with dieting, with support and, and, or maybe like 60 or 70. And I was eating myself back up to 300 pounds after my last relapse, when all of this chaos started to happen in my life. And I didn't understand the chaos. And people would say, oh, lean into God, lean into God. I'm like, he's taking my mom, my mom, who's my best friend. He's taking her. No, I'm not leaning into God. How can God do this? He gave my husband cancer. Why do I have, why do I have to go through all this? You know, and my disease loves pity. Oh, does my disease love pity? And so I was in that pity party and everyone was saying to me, wow, I've never seen somebody at your age go through what you're going through. No wonder you're putting on weight. No wonder. Yeah, I sure was. You know, I was eating like I'd never eaten before and I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I had this like fantastic opportunity, this job that I wanted so bad. And I was calling in sick. I was, you know, I just couldn't, I remember getting up and being like, okay, God, if you're there, I need you. I'm struggling. I don't want to eat again today. You know, and I would start my day. And, you know, by 10 o'clock, I was in the staff room, if I went to work that day, eating. And it takes what it takes. I had to hit a bottom that I had never thought I would ever go. The things I said I would never do in these rooms, I was doing. And I, I just was dying. I was dying. It would, it would only have been before long if I kept going the way I was going because of the drugs I was using, it was gonna kill me. And, you know, myself, my disease, that liar inside me told me, it's okay, it's okay. Like, you're stressed, look at all this stuff, you know? And today, you know, my whole God thing was not big and like drastic. It was slow going. I saw people that had an answer and I believed that maybe that could work for me too. And I heard them carrying a consistent message and it had to do with the big book. And so, you know, I had to seek outside help because I was in a booth. I tried on my own will. And, you know, I love, I heard somebody say like, yeah, we're powerless. That's why we can't put down the food. You know, the power comes from God. And, you know, at that point, I wasn't willing to believe that God was going to do it. But I had to believe something because I had seen the miracles in the rooms. And, in, you know, the I had known enough that I'm not terminally unique. Like, 
And so I just started, you know, I went to treatment, I got out of treatment, I put the food down, the food was down like once and hopefully for all, God willing, but the food was really down. I wasn't lying to myself. I didn't have to say, oh yeah, I'm doing it imperfect or I'm doing it, you know, like a little bit. I just have a little bit and it's okay. No, no, no. There's my food needs to be black and white. I don't eat sugar. I don't eat flour. Don't drink caffeine. I don't do, you know, a lot of things that I used to, that my liar would convince me I could do. And my addict is a liar. There's a liar in my brain that's going to, it wants me to jump off. And so I have two sides and this is the way I think about it. God is here. He's the truth. And then I have the liar on the other side. This power needs to combat the liar. That's the only way through this. And so, you know, I started doing things like looking at what am I worshiping? What am I worshiping today? I'm worshiping validation. I'm worshiping men, relationships, drugs, alcohol, family, you know, and what are those? Those are my character defects. Like I was in envy and I was in false pride and I was in self-loathing, you know, oh, poor me, poor Brandy. And, you know, the dishonesty, the selfishness, the laziness, the procrastination, you know, anger, hate, all of those things, all those things were blocking me from my creator, from God. And so that's how I showed up. That's how I showed up from my, from my last relapse is in all those character defects. And so what I needed to do is I needed to work these steps to get those under wraps so that I could be available to God. And then I just started praying and, you know, I struggled, I still struggled for the first probably six months to in, as far as just not being good enough, like, is this really possible? Is this really happening for me? You know, I question that constantly. And I said a prayer probably for, I would say six months. And it went something like this, God, please heal the part of me that believes I am not good enough to have recovery healthy relationships, food neutrality, so that I can be of maximum service to you and your fellows. And I just kept saying it and I kept believing it. And then I started seeing little miracles in my life, right? Like relationships were starting to change. Five minutes. Thanks. Three minutes. Three minutes. Thanks. And so I was living in, you know, forgiveness. God help me be forgiving of the people in my life, you know, that I had destroyed today. I have miracles, miracles. And when somebody said their life is awesome, fuck, yes, yes. You know, my life is so awesome. I have relationships with people who did not want anything to do with me. And today they're like, Brandy, you changed so much. And that's what the big book promises. I'm going to do a 360 degree change, not 180, 360. I am going to change if I allow God to keep me in line. And if I live by his principles, you know, forgiveness, kindness, love, honesty, I can't rip off the tax man anymore, which I was doing. I had to make an amends. You know, I, I, I justified it. But today I don't justify those things because to me, I don't want to, honestly, the weight, I've lost 135 pounds. That's awesome. Great. Wicked. I can wear nicer clothes. Great. But the life today is such a miracle and such a gift. And with that, I'll pass, thanks. Thank you so much, Brandy.
Thank you. It was wonderful. Um, our next speaker is going to be Daniel Kay, Dan Kay from California. Dan is a recovering anorexic who just celebrated 26 years of abstinence and who also daily celebrates a 65 pound weight gain from his lowest weight. So Dan, excited to hear you. Hi everybody, I'm Dan, I'm a recovering anorexic. And thank you, Susan, for asking me to share today. Hi Arlene, hi everybody I know and love and those who I don't know but love. Um, it's good to see you all, I'm glad you're all here. Um, yeah, uh, how did I find my higher power? I choose to call my higher power, higher power. Um, I, let's see, I mean, I can just tell my story and talk about anorexia. I mean, this, the short answer to the how did I, how do I find my higher power is, is by, I would say, I take action contrary to anorexia. That's how I find my higher power. Um, and I wanna talk more about that, but I wanna kind of share some of my story. Um, and I do that with the help of a higher power. Um, so I, I, I was born in Southern California. I was raised in a religious cult. And it's important to talk about that because there are people in these rooms that have had really horrible experiences with um, organizations. And I'm one of those people. And I, I know I'll be brief about my family. It was very abusive, very, very abusive family, um, but it was psychological and emotional. So it took me a really long time to sort of see what was really going on. Um, and I know that my parents, you know, abused their kids because of the abuse that they suffered. And there's a part of me, a big part of me that has real compassion for my parents, for, for what they went through as children. And I also, through recovery, have been able to allow them to be adults who made choices, who chose not to get help and therefore had to abuse their kids out of their pain. And it's not one or the other. I've tried both in my life. I've tried love and all I have to do is love and forgive everyone and everything. And I've also tried being enraged at everyone and everything. And I have found a real balance in my life where I no longer have to take responsibility for the abuse that I suffered as a child. And that is a huge part of my recovery. And um, I believe anorexia, I, I was told later actually by, by lots of professional people that anorexia is the act of taking, or of act of carrying something that isn't ours. And that's really my experience. So um, I survived my childhood. I survived the religious cult. I came out of it. I picked up anorexia as soon as I came out of the closet at 20. Um, and I, it's really important to describe anorexia beyond the food for me. Anorexia is a life disorder. It's not a food disorder. Food is part of it for me. Um, I heard a young anorexic years ago, or not years ago, a couple months ago on Zoom talk about, she was sharing at a meeting and she talked about how she came upon anorexia honestly. And I, that really spoke to me because what that meant for me was when I was 20, I came out of the closet. I was already sort of kind of thin, going thinner. There's a lot of, you know, pressure in the gay community to look a certain way. I just thought I was doing the right thing. I got involved in new age spirituality in my early 20s, which was something I had to do to help me recover from my 
cult religious upbringing. But I have to say that my anorexia got a hold of that. And I truly believed I was being spiritual when I was practicing anorexia. I truly, truly believed I was doing the right thing. I wasn't like, oh goody, I get to go home and starve. No, it wasn't fun. It was like, no, I'm gonna, I would say things like, no, I'm gonna go home and take care of myself. And taking care of myself meant going home, eating a plate of raw beets for dinner and being alone. That was taking care of myself. Um, and that sense of purity, that internal purity that I got from not eating enough food, that in sense of internal purity I got from not having sex ever, that, in, that, that internal sense of purity I got from never shopping and thinking that the material world was evil and wrong and bad. And if you watch television, you're a heathen. That whole anorexic mindset that humanness in general, but especially my humanness, was something to evolve above, something to get away from, something to um, look down upon and like I said, evolve above. It was very monastic. And I really confused, like I said before, spirituality with anorexia. I came to OA at 20, wasn't ready, went out, got more anorexic, lost more weight, got more into that spiritual mindset of, you know, thinking I was doing the right thing by denying myself and my body its needs. And and I have to say, people, people, I saw, what am I saying? I have to say, people, I sound like one of my teachers from high school. There's a lot of support in this world for that mindset. There is a lot of support in this world for the belief that evolving above and beyond my human needs and desires is positive. We all agree that when an anorexic is 80 pounds and their hair is falling out and they have an ivy in their arm, that there is a problem. But there's a lot of us in this world that celebrate that sense of control and that false spirituality. And I was one of them. And I had no idea what was going on. And when I came back to OA in 1995, when I finally got abstinent, you know, I was, I was about, to, I was dying of anorexia. You know, I, I did hit my bottom in OA, my hair was falling out. I was less than 130 pounds. I was closer to 125. I'm six foot five. I was basically a walking skeleton, still believing that I was overeating and still believing that my desire for food was evil and wrong and addictive. And I had to learn as a recovering anorexic that my biggest fear as an anorexic is that if I let go of control, I lose control. I've had anorexic sponsees who are 83 pounds telling me that they're afraid if they eat, they'll eat emotionally. And I said, good, please do us all a favor. Go eat emotionally for a little while, please, before your heart explodes, honey, because it's about to. And what I have found is that that doesn't happen. That didn't happen to me. As I let my human desires and appetites happen and flourish, and quote unquote, take me over, which is what it feels like for an anorexic, I didn't go the other way. I just got healthy. I've never once been overweight. I've never once binged in my life. I just got healthy. I shop, I'm happily married. 
to an available loving man. I have my dream car, I have my dream house, I have a great life today. It's not about worshiping those things, but it is about owning that I have needs and desires. And those needs and desires come from my higher power. And so that's kind of the long way of saying, I find my higher power in my recovery from anorexia. I find my higher power in celebrating my human desires. When I let go of my control, I let in. Taking in is my recovery. I had a moment this morning when I was washing dishes. I was using my sponge, my dish sponge, and it was old. And the green stuff was flaking off into the sink. And I, had a, I have a new pack, two new packs of sponges under the sink. My anorexic mind wants to keep using the old sponge. I like conserving things, people, as an anorexic. I like riding bikes. I don't like driving cars. I like being perfect on the earth. Take the sponge, put it in the trash, Danny. Get the new sponge, Danny. That's me letting go and letting in. When I let go, I take in and I get big and I take up space. And that is my recovery from anorexia. I bought my dream car a few years ago. This car is fast and it's got an eight cylinder engine and it's bitching and I've always dreamed of owning it. And the anorexic part of me wants to put it in eco mode all the time. Well, guess what? It's a huge car and it doesn't drive well in eco mode. It's meant to drive big and beautiful and fast. Putting it in sport mode, that's my higher power. I can hear the environmentalists on the call like cringing. I'm an environmentalist too. I care about the earth, but I drive my BMW and I drive it fast and I enjoy it. Thank you very much. I mean, I, I still have anorexic thoughts. I, a couple months ago, I came up with the idea that I need to give up green tea. I have one to two cups of green tea and I really enjoy it. My anorexia, no, that's time to go. Time to let go of that. That's a little too much. Anyway, I feel like I'm making the same point over and over again. I will say this, a mantra I got from my home group in Studio City. I'm being timed, right, Jen? Yes, you have five minutes left. Keep Thank going. You. Oh, great. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Um, at my home group years ago, I always feel like when I go to a meeting, I hear what I hear in the meeting, but often when I hear when I'm driving home from the meeting, that's often can really be my higher power. And I got, I had this moment where I got a mantra from my home at the AB meeting in Studio City. And my mantra to this day is I'm willing to be big and I'm willing to get bigger. I'm willing to go through the horrible, uncomfortable experience of expansion. And I'm not really talking about my body anymore. I've been the same way for the last 26 and a half years or so, 26 years, something like that. And I'm talking about being willing to have a bigger life. Years ago, a friend of mine, Margot, talked about how she lost her weight too quickly in abstinence. She's an overeater. And she talked about how, I share this story all the time. I'm really feeling moved to say it now. Um, she talked about how she got into OA, she was in for six months, she lost 40 or 50 pounds, and she was suddenly ripped of her defenses. She was ripped of her barrier and her, her, her security blanket. 
And when she told me, and she said she didn't have the spiritual muscle to handle that level of exposure. And when she said, when she told me that, I realized that while Margot found safety and disappearance in her overweight body, I found disappearance in my smallness. Not just my small body, yes, in my small body, yes, in my food obsession and my controlling food and my controlling my appetite for food. But more than that, I found safety in a small life. I found safety in voicelessness, in not taking up space, not letting people see who I am, not sharing who I am with other people. That's the smallness of anorexia. It's a compulsion to smallness, not just with food and with body, but with everything. I had a sponsor tell me I needed to learn to flip people off on the freeway. It's real. I don't do that today. I had a sponsor early. She's like, stop being the good boy. Go down the street. If someone cuts you off, put up your middle finger. Oh no, I can't do that. I can't do that. Do it and call me back. Do it. I had to bookend flipping someone off. The compulsion to be good is core to anorexia. And it's false. It's not who I really am. That false, good, little, pious, small, voiceless boy, that is what I had to do to survive the abuse. It's not who I really am. And I find and have found who I really am in recovery in OA and recovering from anorexia nervosa. And that, that's the long way of saying what I said at the beginning. I find my higher power in my willingness to be full, in my willingness to feel big, in my willingness to feel out of control, in my willingness to feel you know, overly materialistic and overly human. But what I found is when I go through that discomfort, and I'm really saying this to the any anorexics on the call today, when I go through that discomfort and it is so uncomfortable to go through that big, stuffed, ugly, human, dirty, messy feeling, when I go through it and I go through it with you and a higher power, I come out the other side into true joy and freedom. And I come out the other side who I really am. I don't apologize for my existence today. I say this all the time too. Every time I starved myself, every time I denied myself sex, every time I denied myself those $300 diesel jeans, every single time I denied myself this beautiful human world, I was apologizing for my existence. I don't apologize for my existence. I drive my BMW, I eat three meals a day, I eat snacks if I need it, I enjoy my marriage, I enjoy my homes, I enjoy my creativity, I enjoy my friends, I enjoy this big, beautiful world. And I don't apologize for it. My higher power wants me to enjoy this human world. That's the higher power I have today. I call that higher power, higher power, and I call that higher power the universe. The universe is always expanding. So why would I, and me being part of the universe, why would I be exempt from that? My higher power is still in recovery today, is still asking me to expand, still asking me to go through that discomfort of getting bigger and, and stretching. And I'm still being asked to expand. And with the, help, with the help of that higher power and the help of you and meetings and the tools and the steps and writing and calling and everything we do here, I can palette and then ultimately celebrate that expansion.
Thanks, Danny. That's time. That's my time. I'll just wrap it up and say thank you guys very much. I'm really glad to be here. And my life is beyond my wildest dreams without question. Thanks, Susan. Thank you so much, Dan. That was, um, that was really good. Um, so now we have our second writing prompt. Matt, are you able to put that on the screen, please? Thank you. So same thing, we'll have about um, 10 minutes and Jen will give us a three minute warning. So let's see, page 60 of the big book gives us the ABCs. Once we admit we're compulsive eaters and can't manage our own lives or relieve the obsession ourselves, we are asked if we believe that God could and would if he were sought. So this, do you believe that God could, that God is able? If so, do you believe that your higher power will restore you personally to sanity if you seek? And if not, why not? And what's one thing that you can start doing today to seek your higher power? So we got 10 minutes and then we'll come back for two more speakers.
three minute warning. All right, Susan, that's time. Thank you, Jen, so much. And before we carry on, I don't want to be remiss and thank everybody who has helped us so much from both New Jersey Intergroup and Los Angeles Intergroup. Thank you for the fabulous flyer to our wonderful KTM, who is a member of the board and the other board members who are here today and helping out and to Stephanie and Matt, who are our tech hosts, Jen for timing. And thank you, Janet, for this great suggestion of our two intergroups putting together this workshop. It really, really has been amazing. So here we go, home stretch people. So now we have asked our friend Roger to read a paragraph. Go ahead, Roger, please. Thank you. Roger, compulsive overeater. When we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, 
we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Thank you, Roger. So as our flyer said, from sea to shining sea, and we are now using our Zoom miles, and I think we can all afford to go first class. We are Zooming to, I believe, what is called upstate New York, to our lovely friend, Amy B. To, so most of you on the East Coast will know her, and on the West Coast, you will know her because, of course, you didn't miss the OA birthday party, right? And today is actually Amy's three-year OA birthday. There she goes with her hat. Three years ago today, she wasn't in a very good place and she's going to share that with you today. So Amy, take it away, thank you. Thank you so much, Susan. Jen, may I please have a five minute warning? Thank you. Okay, I'm gonna set my timer as well. Um, hi everybody, Amy B, very, very grateful recovered compulsive overeater coming to you from the Mid-Hudson Valley in New York. Um, I want to start by saying thank you to Susan and Janet for putting this incredible event together. Thank you, Matt, Katie, Jen, Stephanie, Lewis, for all of your help. Thank you, Harlan, David, Brandy, Dan, and Ore. It is a privilege to share next to you. And thanks to everybody who's here today in this fellowship, sharing our experience, strength, and hope, our common solution to our common problem. So as Susan says, I came into the rooms, I came into the rooms three years ago yesterday. I got abstinent three years ago today. Um, and just to give a little, you know, impact on what that was, here's what I looked like the day that I came into the rooms three years ago today. Um, and then I also want to show you, and I know a lot of people have seen this. I show this to qualify. This is the in 25 years of my life before I came into OA. So basically my entire adult life where my weight went up and down and up and down and up and down. I did not have any power in my life. And I show that because I know that it makes an impact in terms of this solution being something that works. I had tried everything else. I had had minimal temporary success, but no solution. Um, and just to take a note to the physical recovery, I'm down 120 pounds in program, 150 for my highest weight overall. This is a solution. It does work. And it's not, it's not um, without the topic of this workshop, how I found God. So, okay. So when I came into the rooms, not only was I, you know, over 300 pounds and miserable, but I was also, um, you know, uh, not having any kind of higher power in my life. It was my therapist who sent me to OA. I went to her because of course my entire life was falling apart, not just my weight. And I had mentioned to her sort of like as an off side thing that, um, that uh, I had gained and lost a ton of weight. And, and I couldn't believe that I had to do it again, over a hundred pounds. She said to me, you need to go to OA. That's the first thing she said to me. And I was pretty, you know, desperate at that time. So I said, I will try anything, but I'll tell you right now, I'm going to have a problem with the God thing. Spoiler alert, friends. She did not, in fact, end up having a problem with the God thing. Okay. But I did think I felt very, very like distrustful of God, distrustful of religion, 
everything that it says in Bill's story about the idea of a God personal to me, making me agitated, like, yes, yes, that happened. And I came into the rooms and I was desperate. And um, I, my second meeting, not my first meeting, I heard somebody whose story resonated with me. And I said, okay, I'm willing to give anything a shot. That was, you know, May 2nd, three years ago. And the sponsor that I started working with had sent me a, 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 I didn't have my big book yet. She sent me a, a writing from that day's for today. And I have the notebook here with me. I put it in the notebook and I diagrammed it like an English assignment with all of these like notes because, you know, that's what I do. I'm going to do it correctly. I'm going to get the gold star in recovery. Um, and one of the things that came through to me a lot was I was looking at things in this particular share from May 4th in the, in the, for today talks about healing in its own time. It talks about um, uh, uh, passing up chances. It talks about trust. And I started writing in the margins, like healing with a capital H, opportunity with a capital O, trust with a capital T. And then I was thinking about like the force of the universe. And I wrote force with a capital F. And I had that in my mind and I went for a walk to think about it. And I had my headphones on and I was listening to music and I heard a song that I have listened to a million times before, but I heard it differently this time. It sounded like a conversation and the song's not a duet. The lyrics are not a conversation, but I heard a conversation between myself and a loving higher power where I was saying, I can't do this. I'm hurting. And it just hurts too much. And the voice said, I know you're hurting. I know this is all pain and I'm here with you and I love you. And I started crying. I just, it, it broke through me in a way that was very, very surprising. And I ran back to my, well, I was over 300 pounds. So I walked as fast as I could back to my notebook. Um, and I wrote, this is what I wrote. I'm going to read it. My higher power is female. The universe, mother earth, the force love, regardless of what I come to call her, she is definitely a she. She is loving, supporting, accepting, and wise. She is fierce and strong and brave. She is the ultimate ride or die best friend. No food, whether it's the triggeriest trigger food or the healthiest, most balanced meal fills the hole. Finding my best plan of eating and moving will 100% take the weight off and eating that way should be all it takes to get there and stay there physically, but that's only physically. And in the same way, no degree of emotional growth is bulletproof. No matter how much I evolved, no matter how happy I become, it wasn't enough. I'm an addict. I'm incapable of curing that. It just is. It's the spiritual piece that is going to be my work. I know what I have to do, but I don't want to write it down yet. And of course, that was trust. That thing was trust. So that's where I started with this ideal of like a mother earth figure. And I really sort of leaned into that sort of non-traditional like imagery. And then I started, I want to share something else with you. My, my, I created a little sacred space for myself, um, really sort of gentle and loving. And I, the quilt that's hanging up behind it, I won at my first region convention from OA. I, I won it in a raffle. And um, that's a beautiful story too. And it became the backdrop of my sacred space and my original imagery around a higher power. I would light like incense or candles so I could see the smoke going. And I would imagine that that 
smoke, as I sort of was talking about the things that I felt like I needed to surrender, they would mingle with the smoke and my imaginary female higher power would like take it and put it in a glass bottle and stick it in one of the squares on the quilt. And that was my little process, my little imagery. And it made, it made me comfortable with the idea of a higher power, but it was all pretend and it was all in my head and it was all one way. And you know what? It was great for, for what it was. Um, it got me there. It gave me comfort in a way that started, but it didn't, it didn't give me recovery. And, um, little bit into my my journey in OA, I started hearing somebody talk about the promises. I sort of eschewed the big book, didn't like it, didn't like the language, didn't like the people. I didn't like, you know, all of that stuff. But I had decided to set that aside and start with a new idea. And I heard someone speak about the thesis statement of the big book, which is on page 45. Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And here's what I wrote in the margin of this. What if it's not the power greater than myself that will solve the problem? What if it's finding the power that will solve it. Like we don't give our problems to higher power and sit and say, solve this. We keep finding, we keep seeking our higher power. And that pursuit is how the solution is able to solve it or find us. So then I was like, huh, okay, finding being, seeking. Well, that's an interesting idea. And then another thing that sort of came in concert with that was, the idea and something that bothered me, God bothered me when I came in and um, the concept of defects, the word defects bothered me when I came in and um, through working with others, which again is a huge part of this program, somebody pointed out to me that defect is a noun, meaning a shortcoming, an imperfection or a lack, but it's also a verb and it means to abandon one's home country or cause in favor of an opposing one. Okay. So if Okay, the big book says love and tolerance is my code. It's my DNA code, loving higher power. So I'm made of love, I'm meant to be loved. So if I'm letting my resentments, my fears and my need to control drive my actions, I'm defecting from my home cause, which is love. My defects aren't who I am. They're the direction in which I'm heading, which is a way from who I'm supposed to be, from who I am, from my loving source. So then I start thinking, okay, going in the wrong direction. I was lost. I certainly was lost in my life. So then I'm like, all right, let's look in the book. The word direction appears 13 times in the first 164 pages. The word lost, 24 times. The word found, 60 times. And the word find, 74 times. The find, the active sense of find, 74 times in the first 164 pages. My higher power then ceased being a, a figure, a deity, a, a person-like thing. And it became divine guidance a higher set of divine ideals, which actually came from the Oxford group's absolute. Absolute love, 
absolute unselfishness, absolute honesty, and absolute purity, which to me means without ulterior motive. So if divine guidance, like as a compass setting, as a direction I want to head in, is my higher power, it's about where I'm going. Okay, in the book on page 60, because of course, then I'm like looking for guides and looking for guidance. And my favorite one on how it works, page 60, the principles we have set down, again, these divine ideals are guides to progress. Progress is another word that's both a noun and a verb. Progress as a noun is a forward or onward movement towards a destination. And as a verb, it's advanced towards a better condition guides to progress it's all about direction it's all for me my higher power and then i was thinking about the name of this workshop how i found god and not i don't need to do it my way and also true is the idea that i kind of like how i find god because found implies the end the end of the journey I keep finding, I pray that my connection, my understanding, my, my sense of this continues to progress and grow. And I keep finding. Um, and that is, that is what I do. When I have a moment where I feel sticky, I realize I'm letting the wrong sentiment drive my next action. I got to do something next. Thank you. I have to do something next. I have to take another step in some direction. And if I let my resentments, my fears, my need to control drive that motion, I've done that. The neighborhood I end up in is not nice to be in. It's not a place I feel comfortable or safe. If I let those divine ideals be the driver. If I let the, I don't know, I don't have an address for the GPS because I thought I knew where I wanted to go and I was wrong. The places where my divine guidance have led me were way better. So like, what if I don't put any, what if I don't seek any specific outcome or something? What if I just look for the direction to go in? If I let those divine ideals drive tell me which way to step next, which way to go, adjust that compass towards love and understanding and unselfishness and honesty and service and all of that. The neighborhood that I end up in, the things and the people with whom I am walking and, and, and being is better than any, anything I would have thought to put in the GPS. So that's, really where my current sense of finding, seeking God is. And I know we're in step two, but step 11, I love that step 11 starts with the word sought. We sought through prayer and meditation. We seek, we sought, we find, we move. That's that's what it is. So again, back to the thesis statement in the book, bringing it back around. That's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself. And 
forgive my edit, that finding is what solves my problem. And um, thank you so much for this opportunity to do service today. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Amy, and happy, happy birthday. Okay, now back on the plane, put on your seatbelts, and we're coming back to Los Angeles to hear another member of one of my favorite boy bands, my lovely friend O'Ray. O'Ray came into these rooms in 2001 when he was 19 years old. And today, as he told me so precisely, he has four years, nine months, and 17 years of abstinence. So, Oray, take us home to Q&A. Thank you. My name is Oray, and I'm a compulsive eater. Um, yikes. I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, the, 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 the consequence of being the last speaker is like, you know, I had ideas of what I wanted to share, and, you know, it's just, that was just all shattered as I listened to every speaker, right? And um, so I, like Susan said, I have four years, uh, nine months. And at that time of the text, it was 19 days of, or 17 days of recovery. There's so many angles in which I could approach this, you know, the, but the, the one the one thing I kept thinking, like even the title of this is like, I really don't, I feel like God, God came and got me. You know, I, you know, Janet, she says, you know, in her, in her, she says, she said it, you know, there was a search and rescue, like, I really feel like God found me. And I've told this story. I really don't think I had another choice in life. I, I think I was destined with, so my, my parents, um, they were Black Panthers and they were in a whole movement of, you know, reclaiming, um, they were all about, you know, Black people reclaiming um, their roots. So they were into African studies, and, you know, they decided to name their children African names. I could have easily been um, a Danian or uh, a Charles or something like that, like some American classic name, but they decided to name their children these Nigerian names, right? And, and, and they believe that you give, your, you, give, you give your children names that they that spiritually in line with them before they're even born like you pray on it you do a whole thing and you and you're divinely guided to give your children the name that they're going to be on the path for like right so my brother like his name is coyote and it's god saves me and it turns out when he was born he had the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck and god saved him for me it was ore which is benevolence holy God's God is my lover like not in this it is like God is my lover like um and I was like well, why did they give me that name like I didn't have a choice to go another way <laughs> so I was born with a name benevolence holy my middle name is God loves me like wow I didn't have a choice and I've tried and I've tried I swear I swear I just wanted to be like a normal boy I wanted to do all the things, uh, you know, I wanted to do all the things the normal boys did. 
And I try and I try to fight the physics. I call it fighting the physics. Like I, I you know, and I wanted to do other things. Um, and uh, fast forward um, to, I think it was about, yeah, I was telling this story about six months, six months in, I realized that, you know, being in OA is my destiny. Like this was my fate. Like it was a, 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 a it was a, like me fighting this was, ridiculous like all the relationships that I had formed my whole experience up until you know that point it was just like I was fighting the physics and I did not want to accept this but in that moment it, it became clear as a bell that oh this is what I'm supposed to be doing in life so there was also a moment where before I came back I was you know, I was in this room right here and there was a big bed in here and I was sitting on this bed surrounded by food. And uh, I had just gone to the restroom where I couldn't wipe myself. I couldn't take a shower because it was just so, you know, just the, the sheer, just it, it was physically difficult, you know? And, and it wasn't a shameful moment, but it was just a moment of absolute clarity of what I was. You know, it was a moment of clarity of what I was. And, and in that moment, I realized that, you know, absent of a miracle, this is the way I was going to live until I died. And I don't, I didn't believe that it was going to be like a, a immediate, it, it was immediate death. It was going to be a long, miserable journey to death if I didn't have a miracle. And I just started praying like, God, please help me show up, man. I can't get back. I need you. I, like, I need a miracle, bro. That's, that's what I was just, that was my prayer. Like, God, please help me show up. And I need to show up in a new way. And something happened. Like something happened. And I, and I love when hard, I was, I was, talking to a sponsee about that story about Bill W. He's sitting in this, he's sitting in this kitchen. He has alcohol stashed away. Like, and he's already surrendered to the, to the reality. He's surrendered to the physics that he's going to die. Like the physics are, he's going to die. Like he surrendered to that idea. He's done with trying and trying to fight and trying to get out. Like he's done. He's already and other, other people have surrendered to the idea of his death. And he gets a call. Like, and then, you know, Harlan tells a story about all the, all the circumstances that conspired behind the scenes for that call to happen. And I so identify with that because there was no work that I did to deserve the miracle. But that's also the confusing and frustrating thing in, because I can't, you know, I didn't create the miracle. And I don't know why the miracle happened for me and it doesn't happen for any other people. And I think it's presumptuous to say, hey, if you do the work, you're gonna get the miracle. Or you read the book, you're gonna do, you're gonna get the miracle. I, I, I don't know, I, there's something more than just, because there have been times when I felt like I was genuinely doing everything I was told. And it wasn't coming. And here in this moment, you know, 
something happened, the stars aligned. I don't know what it was. And the miracle happened for me. And the miracle continues to happen. I guess all I'm saying is, I'm just trying to express that there's magic in this process that's outside of my capability in my will, my desire. It's something outside of me that I don't know why. I don't know why it happened. And if I did, I wish I could package that up and give it to you. And I work with, I work with so many people now that they want the miracle badly and they just can't get it. How do I, why do I need God? So this morning I woke up and I had this, a text came in. I heard the text and my first reaction was, you see this face right here? Like I felt it. I felt it when I woke up. It was just like, I just automatic snarkiness. It was just, I don't know why I woke up like that. I did my nightly review last night. I actually went to bed. I just woke up in just a, like, what the, you know? And something was like, bro, you need to do your meditation. Do it. I was like, you know what? No, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. No, I'm no, I'm not doing it this morning. So I went straight to breakfast, right? And then the miracle happens, right? Where I get on a meeting and in the meeting, during the meeting, I'm not critical of anybody. I'm not tearing people apart. I'm not judging them. Like humility has been something that life has been working on me. Like life has really been working on me. It's been really painful to be in, to be in myself because of the superiority and the snobbery and the snarkiness and all like it's been really painful. And this morning, I got the miracle, the relief of just being present in the meeting, not tearing people apart, not, you know, just not all that going on. And then that, that voice came back, bro, let me, I, took, I did some more, like, I, I, between then and my men's group, I did some meditation. I needed to get my meditation, and I did my meditation. And I was just, and, I, and lately, I've been doing a new routine of, you know, meditating on, instead of my character defects, I've been meditating on the solutions to those. So if superiority is something that's been coming up, I'm meditating on humili uh, humility. If, um, uh, you know, like just meditating on tolerance, God, how do I, how do I be tolerant? How do I, you know, like just praying on, just praying and meditating on that. And then when I went into the men's group, again, I wasn't tearing men up, like tearing the guys apart, not feeling better than, or like I got the answers for it. Like I was humility, like I felt humility, like right size. And I could exist in that moment and be at peace within myself. Like it was, it's been months. I haven't felt that. And it was so much relief. Like that's why I need God. Like it was just a blessing to not feel all that inside of me. And then when I when I, then when this event started, I looked at the numbers 
and I, I texted Susan, I feel inadequate because her numbers for her event were greater than the ones that I did. Right? This is why I need God. I'm in a relate. I'm in a relationship, a situationship, with a person I can't commit to, nor can I quit. I can't walk away from. This is why I need God. I have friendships where it's it's constantly. I'm constantly like I I I I'm hot and cold in friendships. I push them away, and when they do get up, go away then I need to pull them back. Because of my selfishness and self-centeredness, I put amazing pressure on my friendships. They want to love me. They want to draw closer to me. And I can't allow them to do that. I start to fault find and I start to say, oh, th this is why this person isn't good for me. And I push people away. I don't know how to be in relationships and maintain relationships and closeness and, and vulnerability. Three minutes, all right. This is why I need God. I have neighbors across the street that have constant traffic going in and out of their house. They're driving up and down the street and they're loud and they're you know, banging their music right in front of my house. And it's, it, it, it drives me to the point where I want to go out there and get in a fight because they're not doing what I want. Like, I'm in a constant state of bother. This is five years in. I'm in a constant state of bother of why you're not doing what I want you to do. How people aren't living up to my expectations and standards. This is why I need God. And I don't, you know, my God is, man, I have a, I have a God of ice and fire. Like my, you know, and my, my God is like, I feel like in my God, God is my, my God is a God of war. My God is a God of peace. My God is a God of everything. Like there's nothing like this is God's world. Everything that happens in God's world is that's, that's, that's what it is. And my, my job is to adapt to it. And I, I feel like that, and this is going to sound weird. This has nothing to do with the book. This is kind of my own Oreoism. But I, have, I, I, I discovered that I have, a, I have a superpower of adaptability. I can adapt. That's the beauty about a human being. Like, we can adapt to any situation. I adapted to being 485 pounds. That became a normal way of life for me. So surely I can adapt to... The, the, the cat that likes to sleep and crawl over my car, surely I can adapt to the neighbors who, you know, are just living their life. Surely I can adapt to, uh, you know, people wanting to be close to me and being vulnerable and intimate in relationships. Surely I can adapt to a body that isn't the way that I want it to look, but is super strong and incredible and physical and healthy. Like sure, I can adapt to, surely I can adapt to a life where I don't have to use cigarettes, porn, food, whatever it is. I can adapt to this life. Like I feel like that is a superpower. And I don't think it's my God's job to come to me. I feel like it's my job to go to God.
you know, another image of God that I get, and I've, it's like there's a lake, a big, beautiful lake in the woods, and I set up camp near the lake. I have to go to the lake to get water and to get nourishment from that lake. That lake is there for all creatures who want to benefit from it. I feel like that's my power. That's, that's God to me. Like, it's there. It's in the fabric of everything, and my job is to connect with it. Whatever comes up in my life, whatever reality is, when I'm feeling inadequate, not good enough because of this, this, and that, I have to plug in. That's time, Ori. So I don't know. I just went on a rant there, but it was real and it was an experience for me. So <laughs> how I find God, hey, there you go. <laughs> so, so much. And I just found out it wasn't my text that was your first one this morning. So thank goodness for that. Because if you know Ore, don't send a group text. It's not a thing he likes. Okay. First of all, thank you so, so much. First of all, to Janet for this wonderful suggestion of this workshop. Again, thank you to both of our intergroups for supporting this venture. Um, now, I'm going, we're going to open the chat. We would ask if all of the speakers could please, if you're happy to and willing to put your phone numbers in. Um, so if either Steph or Matt could open that. We are going to keep the recording on so that people listening can have the benefit of Q&A. If you don't wish to identify yourself when you ask your question, that's okay because we won't be editing the recording. If you are shy, please private message me and I will ask your question for you. Your question can be directed to one of the panel members or to all of them as a whole. There is a raised hand feature which after a year on Zoom, I know you know where it is. So, okay, we'll start with Q&A and then we may have some time for sharing and perhaps you have a question about the writing. Um, okay, Nancy, go ahead. I don't think it's on mute. Did I unmute? Yes, you did. Okay, great. My name is Nancy Beecham. I'm a compulsive overeater from Los Angeles. I have been a member, an abstaining member of Overeaters Anonymous for 44 years and 11 months with 150 pound weight loss. And I have to say that this has just knocked me out. Every single one of you just blew me away because you were so honest and Ori, it was like a catharsis listening to you. Uh, my question is this. Um, through the years, I have noticed that more and more, so many people are coming into OA that are slipping and sliding and suffering and struggling and, and really truly not having the willingness to fight to go to any lengths. And do you feel that aside from just compulsive overeating, and this is for anybody, that switching to other compulsions takes a place in this? that you may get your food in order, but may you may be doing other things that are keeping you from God. Because I think, and, it, and could some of you talk about the spiritual experience, which is what we're promised here, and how we get rid of all the fear and resentment and anger and things that stand between us and God so that we can't get close to him? Thank you. Okay, who would like to start? 
Janet, why don't you go ahead? Um, I'll address the first question and then leave one of the other five to address the second about people not being willing to go to any lengths. And what I say about that is those people aren't, I'm under no obligation to do anything, right? On page 58, it says, if you've decided you want what we have, a spiritual experience is the result of these steps, the obsession being removed, and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? So someone says, yeah, I kind of want what you have, but yeah, I'm not willing to do the work, then, then, I, then I'm under no obligation to help them. We're friends, we stay friends, they come to meetings, but not to sponsor. So that's part one and I'll pass on part two because I've only been in one program and that's OA so I can't address other addictions. I can answer some of that question, Susan. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I know for me, um, personally, my primary addiction is food. Um, but I was told straight out in treatment that my codependency and sex and love addiction was, were the things that kept taking me out. I had no idea how to be in relationships. I had no idea how to let people be themselves and not have to control them. Um, I didn't have those skills. I just, you know, like I, and, you know, because I had such a big God-sized hole, like what you thought of me was so important. So I would obsess about those things and obsess about, do you like me? Do you think I'm okay? Do you, you know, and and I guess I never understood what they were saying until I got, I mean, I got, I think six months clean. It wasn't, it wasn't until a year that I started going to other programs to address these things, but I did see how the food was down, but I was still struggling. Like Ori was talking about with just the thoughts, like you annoy me, like, and, and that would ruin my day. And previously I would pick up the food to deal with that uncomfortable stuff. But now the food was down that wasn't an option. And I was still so uncomfortable. And so, you know, I had to look at different things and, you know, I, I struggle with the, like, you know, people come in and they're not willing to do the work. You know what? I spent 27 years or 26 years in these rooms, not willing to do the work, but I was still welcomed, you know, and, and if I would have went with oh, maybe I should just give up because I'm not willing, you know, I didn't know I wasn't willing to do the work. I didn't know that. I thought I was doing the work. I thought that I was doing what people told me. And a lot of times I was, and we can hear unhealthy things that aren't the program of like recovery and action. And so if I would have just been dropped all the time and people wouldn't have like loved me or wanted me to be here, like I would have missed this miracle. I would have been like, this Overeaters Anonymous, bye-bye, right? Like, and so thank you, God, that you guys just told me, just keep coming back. And like the speaker said before me, I still talk to people. I just say, you know what? Like, we just can't do the work. Like, like let's look at step one, two, and three. But, you know, there's really, if my food's not down, then my brain is not ready to hear the message. 
And so, you know, I, I definitely don't turn the, turn the door on those people or close the door because they need to see us. That's how I saw you. And that's what made me believe that I could have this. And so they need to see us. Thank you very much. Okay, now we're going over to our friend Rick Jay. And then I have a question that I will ask on behalf of a fellow. Go ahead, Rick, please. Uh, thank you, Susan. Uh, thank you, everyone. This has been truly amazing. I'm, I'm so grateful that um, I was able to, to join you today. And um, my, my question is simply, you know, having found a God of your understanding, um, how do you keep finding uh, this God of your understanding on a day-to-day -day basis? And that's really all I had. Any of the speakers go ahead and jump in. Hey, this is Amy. Can I take this or start to? Thank you. Um, again, my, my understanding or, or developing understanding of my higher power um, is one in terms of like seeking direction and next right action. So in terms of like, how do I continue to seek? When I find myself getting, I use the word scrunchy, when I get scrunchy and I feel scrunchy in one way or another, and that's not always bad. It's just intense when I get scrunchy I realize that I somebody else is driving somebody I don't want is driving some aspect of my fear or resentment or something that I don't like is driving and I just stop and I think of seeking God as either like adjusting my compass or adjusting my radio dial it's a little staticky and I'm trying to clear it up I'm looking for the center of the Venn diagram of what's loving and honest and unselfish and without my ulterior motives and the closest that I can find to like the center of that Venn diagram that's what I what I lean into in my next right action and also I will say that not knowing not feeling a clear direction is guidance too that's telling me to pause and, and to uh, await more guidance. So I hope that's helped. Anybody else want to add anything to Rick's question or we'll move on? Okay, going once, going twice. Okay, after this question is answered, Deanna, it will be you. Okay, this is a question to all of the panel. Any advice for someone who went through the steps, starting off as willing to believe but went through all 12 steps and still white knuckling. Happy to repeat the question if you want. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in there. Thank you. It, it, you know, I, I've, I've been working with um, several people like that. And, and I think um, I kind of alluded to this in my share. There's the intellectual experience of the steps, right? Like there's the, there's the, the coursework, so to speak. And you can go through the coursework, but then I feel just I feel like there's something greater than the coursework. There's like like the experiential component to it. Like right now, I'm not in a specific. Well, I'm in a I'm in step eight and nine in another in another program, but life has been really working on me on step six and seven, and and I kind of can see situations conspire around that. Like so spiritually i've been in that in the, in that place of learning greater humility so you, you you can intellectually but then it gets to a point where you got to live this thing 
And, and, and I really do, this is going to sound weird, but I feel like life will position me to learn certain, certain spiritual, um, certain principles at certain times. I can be working on a, you know, like for instance, you know, my sponsees, they're, they were in six and seven. A lot of them were in six and seven. And it just so happens to align with where I was in life as far as six and seven. So I don't know if that answers your question, but there's the intellectual piece and then there's the experiential living it on a day-to-day basis. Now that is the, that's what I'm learning is how to live this thing really in, in going from my head to my heart and my experience. Thank you, Oray. Does anybody else want to add on to that? I'll share something. Please. Uh, Dan, recovering anorexic. Uh, you know, I'm gonna kinda, I, I feel like I'm gonna say something that's sort of controversial. I really don't like it when I hear people say that relief is in the meetings and recovery is in the steps. I do the steps. I believe in the steps. But there's also a lot of recovery in meetings and let people letting people see who I am. I know a lot of people that just want to go through the steps and they don't want to call and they don't want to let people see who they really are and be naked like that and put your camera on, even if you don't have makeup on, even if your hair's a mess. Like this is a come as you are program because the higher power I find when I am involved with other people. Everything I go through in my life, people, my people and program know what's going on in my life always. And the higher power I find in connecting with other people is my real higher power. The higher power I find when I'm on some mountaintop with a book, silent like a monk, that's the God of my anorexia. And I much preferred that God. Before I came to OA, I remember saying a prayer, higher power, please. This is the second time I came back. I literally said, higher power, please don't ever make me have to go back to OA with all those horrible people. Because that having to go and connect and let people see who I really, really am, that's hard work. And that is where I find my real higher power. So I just wanted to say that, yes, of course, recovery is in the steps. But guess what? Recovery is in the tools and the meetings as well. Thank you. Okay, Deanna, your question, please. This is for any of the panelists. Thank you for all of your shares. Incredibly powerful. I took a lot of notes. Uh, it's a two-part question. Uh, one, I was wanting to know if anyone in their journey has struggled with atheism, maybe finding a higher power, but then sliding out of that and, and falling into doubt that your higher power is actually real. Uh, and my other question would be, uh, did anyone ever struggle with leaving the religion or faith of their childhood? And if so, how did you get around fear of letting go of that for the sake of your recovery? Hey, this is Amy. <clears throat> Thank you for the question, Deanna. First of all, absolutely came in as an atheist. And again, when I had that sort of first initial concept of this female mother nature kind of God, like it didn't, it felt like I, that's what I wanted it to be as opposed to a real connection. And that's why taking the deity aspect out of it for me has allowed me to have just a, 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 an understanding that doesn't threaten, not threaten, that doesn't 
make me feel uncomfortable with things that I that I am distrustful of, distrustful of. When it comes to the the God of my religion or my childhood, um, I, I got to be honest, it wasn't one that I had trouble leaving behind because I had distrust, but I've worked with people and I, I don't know if this is possible, but I'm going to just put it out there. What if the God of someone's religion or upbringing or childhood works in concert with the idea of a higher power of guidance of direction? What if that God is like cool with the idea that like you have a process to seek direction that is compatible, not like another God, but like a helpful guiding ideal and whether or not those things could be harmonious or at least not in opposition. I don't know if that's helpful. I hope it is. Anybody? Yeah, I would like to, uh, Susan, can I speak to that real quick? Cause it's so specific to my experience. Um, I, um, I, I believe many people in a way and in recovery find a God of their understanding that is also the God of their upbringing. And I think that's so awesome. I think some of us that's, for me, that was impossible. And what something that really helped me was something I learned later in my recovery as I really started to heal from the deep, deep stuff of my upbringing. And something I came to see in my own family, my abusive family was that there's a difference between love and abusive love. And that abusive love is the intertwining of love and danger where love is totally real and danger is just as real. And, and I, earlier in my life, I read about, you know, in some spiritual texts about how we as people tend to create the God of our understanding based on our upbringing. In other words, I projected, I created a God in my own mind that was my abuser that was absolutely loving and absolutely out to get me. And I had to, I had to, for my life and for my recovery, I had to redefine a higher power. And it did make me feel like I was betraying my family. It did make me feel like that. And guess what? I have a great life because of it. And it's such a simple thing, but someone suggested early in recovery, write a one ad write a want ad for what you want in a higher power. And it really worked. And the, um, the last thing I'll say, oh, there was one other thing. Um, oh my gosh, I just totally had a brain, uh, a brain thing where I just forgot. Uh, what was the first part of the question about? Um, not leaving God behind. Atheism. Atheism. Oh, I just want to say quickly, my atheist friends are the spiritual, most spiritual people I know. I just want to say that. They live in the moment. They, they, they don't, they don't future trip like, there's, there was something really toxic about the religion of my upbringing. I am not anti-religion. I'm anti what I went through. I just want to say that. Um, it was all about later. Suffer now so you can be happy when you die. Hello, that's anorexia. I've done that. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you. Okay, I have one more private message here and then we'll go on to our other raised hands. And this question is addressed to all of the panel. Over the past year, I have built a solid connection to God. I am very grateful for the guidance and direction I am receiving. I know what they're telling me is in my best interest, but I find myself paralyzed and not taking the right next action. How do you get yourselves to do what God is guiding you to do? 
I can answer that. Um, so I, I actually have experiences very common like that. There's a lot of messages that I get that are definitely not my self-will and I'm resistant to it. Um, one of the biggest things right now is the rate of which I'm releasing weight. Um, you know, and to me, it should be 10 pounds a month. It should be, you know, like I have expectations of what it should be look like. And, you know, when I, when I look at why I want these things, it's all about just getting there, getting like, like I'm like, it's a fucking race. It's not. And so I have done a lot of two-way prayer around it and you know and I, I talked to my sponsor I'm like I think we need to change my food plan I, I think I need to eat less food like you know this is what people are suggesting and and you know that was Brandy's will Brandy's will was like I wanted to do that and so one thing that I've learned in this program is that in order for me to be you know, stay in the sunlight of the spirit. I need to be open. I need to be willing and I need to be honest. So first I needed to be honest that this was my will. And honestly, even if it was 10 pounds a month, that still wouldn't. Be. <laughs> and so bless you. And, um, so I needed, I need to be willing to listen to the message and I need to be open that maybe I don't know. And so in my two-way prayer, like, cause I was all gung-ho, I was going to consult somebody else last month. And in my two-way prayer, I said, God, this is what I'm struggling with. I'm struggling at the weight, the like time it's taking to release my weight. And the fears around that is, you know, what will people think of me? Like, you know, why isn't coming off faster? You know, so I talked to God about that and God said, not right now, Randy. And this month I got on the scale and I lost five pounds. Like last month I stayed the same. And so it's like, God's gonna, if I, if I would have changed my food plan, who knows what would have happened, but I was willing to take the next right direction. And that's what it is. It's like, I don't agree, but I'm going to do it because this is like my, my best thinking got me to 350 pounds in a life of hell. So if I want to go back there, I can continue to listen to my self-will, or if I want to stay in the sunlight of the spirit, sometimes I have to do it even if I don't want to. That I'll pass. Thanks. Anyone else before we go to the next question? I can share on that. Really quickly. Oh. Go, Dave. You. Um, you know, this came up for me in doing step eight and nine when I got to you know, my relationship with my father um, and, you know, my sponsor at the time, I was, I'm never going to forgive my dad when I got to step eight and my sponsor said, well, you can pray for the willingness to forgive. And every day for about a year and, you know, back to, you know, what Ore was saying with the step work, this isn't a homework assignment. This is an experience. And, you know, it's, a lot of these questions, it's up to the sponsor to really guide. That's why it's so important to have the right sponsor who can guide the sponsee into the next step of, you know, when they're ready, um, because this isn't just blasting through. And then, you know, we end up, blah, we're still white knuckling when we got through the 12 steps. So I prayed every day for the willingness to pray for my dad. And then one day I found myself on my knees praying for my dad and meaning it. And then one day I found myself on a plane 
And then one day I found myself, you know, looking him eye to eye, making amends to him. And that, you know, it's all about God, you know, all of these questions, I keep hearing, you know, the phrase from how it works. There is one power, that power is God, may I find him now. Like itself is not running the show. Even that question about, you know, the step work and getting through the 12 steps. I remember I used to race through the 12 steps, even when I was reading them to my sponsor. My sponsor used to say, whoa, just slow down, Turbo. Like actually experience what you're saying. Who is writing this? Is it, is it self-will? doing the step work or are you in connection with God writing the step answers like this is all about bringing in my higher power into all of my affairs and when I do that if I'm not willing um, I become willing and that's the power of God so thanks Amy did you have something to add before you just really briefly if I don't take the guidance rest assured I will get another chance to take it because if I don't learn the lesson, God loves me enough that and wants me to grow. And it's going to say, oh, you didn't learn it last time. Here's another chance. Want to learn it this time? No, you're going to trip over it again. Okay. I love you. Try again. I love you. Try again. If I don't take the guidance, I'll get another chance. Thank you. Okay. Next we have Stacy B. Hello. Yes. Hello. Thank you for the great, great, uh, in-depth, rich conversations today. Really wonderful. So, you know, it's all, all about living. You know, we're trying to live our best life. We're trying to live a God-centered life or whatever your God is. And I, I loved the guidance because that is so paramount in my life. Um, how do any of you adapt this way of living and reconcile it with death? I know that's a weird question. I'm very much looking forward to your responses. Thank you. Well, I'll take it because I know everyone's so eager to answer this one. Um, again, I always figure my opinion isn't worth very much. I mean, if like we want to talk about, I don't know, something at movies or something I can give an opinion but if we're talking about this program I spent six years getting wrong opinions from people and getting worse so I'm going to tread really lightly and I'm thinking about what does the big book say about this subject right because that's really what we care about and after the third step it says um, one of the third step promises is we begin to lose our fear of today tomorrow or the hereafter. So what that tells me is that through working these steps, um, I, I begin to lose my fear of death at step three, and then it, it continues. So that's the, that's the promise of the book. I mean, people may have different experiences. My experience is probably along the lines of this book, because, you know, when I first started this program, I probably, like a lot of people, felt that, you know, God was like this big dude up there in the heavens with a book, you know, on one side, keeping track of everything I did right, the other side, keeping track of what I did wrong. And there was no way I'd make it to the good place if that's how it was done. Um, or what if I thought I was, you know, what if I did like 51 good things and 50 bad, and then, I, you know, so I, 
you know, I came in here like a, a hot mess, just like a lot of us. But through working these steps, right, what, what we are guaranteed, we're not guaranteed a lot, we are guaranteed a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience. And the way that's described is, we um, says the great fact, page 25, is just this and nothing less. So they're telling us, don't settle for less. We've had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and God's universe. The central fact of our lives is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered our hearts and lives or our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. So if, if God starts working on me, so that becomes my reality, of course, I'm going to lose my fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. Thank you. Beautiful response. Thank you, Janet. 